0: Good morning, I hope everyone had a wonderful Easter last week, we certainly did and we were glad to have um, your guests fellowshipping with us, Um, please again know if anyone had any questions or wanted to speak with me um, that I would be delighted uh, to speak with anyone uh, at any time. Uh, about the gospel, about personal needs, about spiritual needs. Uh, I would be delighted to speak with you. Well, I want to go ahead and get right into this this week. I want to go right back to what we were talking about. We're taking a study this year on the basic tenets of the Christian faith. As Pastor Dave so beautifully pointed out this morning He pointed out that it is incredibly important for Christians to be workers who don't need to be ashamed. And one of the unfortunate trends in the Christian faith today in America is that Christians are ashamed of their God. It is my prayer that this church will not be ashamed of the name of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you all praise and all glory. Lord, give us more ears to hear us sing your praises. More eyes to see us live as your disciples. Give us more places to take the gospel. God, help us not to be ashamed you have not left us to be ashamed you have given us your word you have given us your very revelation and you have revealed that you are a great and merciful God that in Christ Jesus all your promises are yes and amen that in Christ Jesus we have a perfect Savior a perfect substitute for our sins and so God it is my prayer That we will embrace that, not just in our hearts, but that we will embrace that with our mouths, with our hands, with our eyes, with our feet, so that in everything we do, Jesus, you might be the centerpiece of our lives. That when people see us, we might earn the right to be called disciples of Christ. Open up hearts, Holy Spirit, as only you can do give us the gift of hearing give us the strength to obey we pray these things now in Jesus name Amen. we're beginning our study again picking up where we left off on the study of basic Christianity and we are now focusing on the third part of the four types of evidence for God or for creation and we're picking up on the topic of life life what is life We use the word sometimes biology to refer to life. And biology is simply the study of all living things bacteria, plants, animals. Living things are also known as organisms. A way to understand that is how molecules, which are formed by atoms, become living, organic, they are alive. And living things are known as organisms. And all organisms are carbon-based molecules that had formed into cells. And these cells have a responsibility of taking in, taking in food, and using that food for energy so that their life will continue to subsist. And in these cells we now know that there is information for all life. And that information is called DNA. And that information is built upon a four-letter alphabet. And those four letters represent acids that bond together in a code. And that code is essentially the blueprint that forms more and more life. Some have even called DNA the very language of God. But we're talking about a very specific part of God's creation. Something different than rocks, something different than space and time. We're talking about life. And I want to explain this question, this question or at least explain the Bible's answer for this major question, and that is where did all of life come from? You see, the answer to this question is fundamental to our entire worldview our worldview is a way of viewing all of reality. It's our deepest held convictions about life. It is a compass for the way that we build and direct our life. And this question is fundamental to our actions. It's fundamental to the rest of our beliefs. It's fundamental to how we live because... If life is an accidental result of time plus chance plus matter, then meaning to life is nothing more than a social construct. In other words, meaning becomes what I make it, the self. But if God exists, if we are created, then the question of where life comes from ends up at God's doorstep and God gets to answer the question, why did you make life? How shall we live this life? If there is no God, we ought to expect Something like a Darwinian model to have occurred in history. But if there is a God and he has told us that he has created the heavens and the earth, then we ought to expect to find as much in the real world. And when we do, the next questions are the major questions how shall we relate to this God? But this is fundamental. Well, Scripture has an answer for this question. Where did all life come from? And in the Bible, it begins in Genesis. It tells us that in the beginning, whenever the beginning was, God created the heavens and the earth. That is to say that there is a mind or an intelligence, a purpose behind the creation. The fundamental difference between... An evolutionary model of Darwinism and Christianity is this major belief that there was a God who designed and created all life for a purpose. The Bible repeatedly in the beginning chapters of Genesis uses this phrase, and God said, That God not only creates everything by his word, by fiat, by his mouth, by the power and authority that he has as Lord, but that God speaks into existence purpose and meaning in creation. God said, Let there be light, let there be an expanse that separates the atmosphere from the waters below. Let the waters be gathered and the dry land appear. Let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. Think about this, when we look at creation, we see that these things that we take for granted, that the cosmologists are telling us are really just there, they're not there for us. Scripture says they are. They are there for us. These beautiful constellations, these stars and the moon, give light. They give energy to life. They are there for us. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So not only does God form earth, but then God begins to create animal life to dwell in the various spheres of earth. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And let us make man in our image after our likeness. Note, one of Genesis 1's favorite themes is the word or the phrase, after their kinds. But even when you don't see the phrase, after their kinds, look for the concept Because when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, it is similar to after their kind. Animals bear the image of animals, but God's creation, man, bears the image of God. We are created after God. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock. And over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The Bible tells us that the source of life is God. It is not an accident. Scripture tells us that the means of life is God's word. It is not accident. It is not survival of the fittest. It is not natural selection acting on random mutation, but the very means by which life was produced was by a conscious mind, the conscious mind of the good God who gave all life a purpose. And that ultimately the result of this creation was that it was very good, that life was good. In other words, all of our concepts of beauty come from God and His divine decree. We'll skip this slide, we'll skip these slides, and then we'll move here to the major question. Up until the point of the 18th century, there was, in Greek philosophy, some who speculated that there may have been ...an origin of human beings that could be traced down through something like an evolutionary model... ...but there came an important scientist who used the thoughts of, of many philosophers and other scientists... ...to form what has come to be known as evolution or evolutionary biology. Now the reason why I use the word evolution is because when you hear the word evolution in the classroom or when you hear evolution on television, or when you read about evolution in a book, typically what they mean is something like Darwin's original thought. Although the word itself, and I'll show you in just a moment, does not necessarily mean Darwinism. But nonetheless, let's use the language of the day to explain what this worldview is. The worldview that was popularized by Charles Darwin came from a book Titled the origin of species the emphasis of Darwin's work was to explain where biological life came from and Darwin argued that since offspring tend to vary slightly from their parents that mutations that make an organism better adapted to its environment and will produce will be encouraged and developed by the pressures of natural selection leading to the evolution of new species differing wildly from one another and from their common ancestors. So that Darwin created a model of creation that says there was an original ancestor, an original living organism and all life has come through that organism. All life has come from one organism. Now, I don't have to tell you that that theory is radically different from the theory of God's word. And because of that, we must see that what we are dealing with when we talk about a Darwinian model or evolution is completely contradictory to God's Word, and it leaves us at a fork in the road, who are we going to follow? Are we going to follow Charles Darwin? Are we going to follow the scientists who have espoused that theory for now over 150 years, or are we going to follow God's Word? Now, you might be thinking that that following is a blind following, but it's not. I would say it's especially not for believers. The very scary part, however, about Darwinian evolution and Christianity is when we approach this fork in the road, the fork, the very beginning, is at the level of ideas. And what they don't tell you is that those ideas have great and grave consequences for all life. There was a movement at the beginning of the 20th century known as eugenics. It became popular in the West. And it was a very important movement based upon... A theory known as social Darwinism. Which was the belief that you could take Darwin's theory of evolution. And apply it to human beings. And that you should, if you are in agreement with Darwin. Want to eradicate undesirable traits. Physical traits in human beings. So that men who had... Genetic defects and who had produced as much and who could show a family history that had genetic defects were encouraged to go into some of our Planned Parenthood businesses and sterilize themselves so that they would not pass off those undesirable traits to their offspring. Ultimately, such thinking led to the thinking. Of Adolf Hitler, who believed you could create a super race if you controlled the reproduction of human beings and you would eradicate all undesirable peoples. These have great consequences. If there is no creator, And this is mere accident. Why not eradicate undesirable traits so as to give off a longer and better, more versatile human species? You see, once man has been devalued to that of an accident and an animal, he no longer has the dignity that comes by bearing the image of God. See for just a moment Satan's hand behind the curtain. Spinning the wheel. See what he is doing here. This isn't about monkeys and man. It's not about ducks and dogs. Ultimately this is about whether or not man bears God's image. Some of the greatest atrocities in the world can be traced back to an embrace of biological evolution. You don't think for one second that the Marxists were creationists, do you? And yet it has been said that somewhere along the lines of between 70 to 100 million deaths in the 20th century alone can be blamed on Marxist worldviews that began with a Darwinian model of how life began. That if there is no dignity on human beings, why does it matter if I walk onto your farm premises, put my gun between your eyes and say, I will take your farm and you say over my dead body and I say your wish is my concern. Bam. Your wish is my command. That's what these communists would do. 100 million deaths at the hands, ultimately, of a Darwinian worldview. Now some will say, well, not all Darwinists are Marxist. Absolutely. But if Darwinism is true, why not? There is no reason why one shouldn't be. We have two views here. Either all life is created according to its kind, the versatility that we see within human beings... Yes, comes from a common pair, and that variability and that variety that we see in the human race comes from a common pair. This is called microevolution. But as far back as you trace human beings, all you ever find is more human beings. As far back as you can trace spiders and cattle, all you ever find is more spiders and more cows. Yes, finch beaks might vary, but as far back as you trace their history, all you ever have is birds. Yes, plants have DNA, but all you ever have is plants. This topic is important. Listen to what one philosopher has said. Once Darwin's apple had fallen from the tree... There was no stopping the ways in which eager scholars would apply it to one problem after another. Like a tide of sweeping away old explanations of natural philosophy, Darwinian thought made scientists everywhere demand naturalistic, that means no God, naturalistic, materialistic explanations for the way things are in other words your behavior can no longer be called sin now it's called a defect now it's called another way of living and so no longer do we make sense of our evil actions in terms of right and wrong but today we make sense in terms of one code of DNA and another code of DNA Miller is right what happens if Darwin is right now his worldview view gets applied to everything sit around at the bar talk with the boys When they're cheating on their wives, what do they say? I can't help it. After all, I am a man. Now they're blaming their own sin on their DNA. As if we are nothing more than animals. Evolution displaced the creator from his central position, says Miller, as the primary explanation for every aspect of the world. And in so doing, Darwin lent intellectual aid and comfort to anti-religionists everywhere. William Provine, who was the professor at Cambridge, ultimately died of a brain tumor, said this, He says, Darwinism ultimately leads here. He says, it starts by giving up an active deity. If Darwin's theory is right, there is no God. He says, it starts by giving up not just a creator, but a deity who cares about me here and now. Then it gives up hope that there's any life after death. What we do here will not carry over into the next life. There will not be justice for Hitler if Darwin is right. The only thing that happened was a man lived a pretty darn good life, by the by. And he ended his life with a bullet through his cranium. That's it. No justice, no absolute justice for these actions. If There's no life after death. If there's no death after death, there is no Justice. When you give those two up, he says the rest of it follows fairly easily. You give up the hope that there's an imminent morality. In other words, you give up the hope that there's any ultimate right and wrong. You give up any right to say that things like rape and incest and slavery and murder and thievery are morally wrong because after all you now are playing the role of God you are now the one saying something is wrong and my question is always who are you I say it's right don't tell me that common sense proves common morality it absolutely does not prove common morality finally you give up even the very concept of free will you are nothing more than the product of your genes if there's a little anomaly in your genes that means you will have parkinson's unless the human genome project figures it out between now and your destination with parkinson's disease you're going to have parkinson's disease no free will if you believe evolution says provine You can't hope for there being any free will. There's no hope whatsoever of there being any deep meaning of life. This is a man who speaks from experience. A man who had a cancerous brain tumor that returned a second time and ultimately led an intellect, a great intellect, who was nonetheless an atheist, but a great intellect. Led him to his early grave. He said, there's no hope so ever whatsoever of there being any deep meaning in life. All if Darwin is true. We live, we die, and we're absolutely gone when we die. Christians, this issue matters. It is a big deal. Let's go on. I want to look this morning then at a quick explanation of some of the issues that Darwin has that ultimately will lead back, excuse me, that will ultimately lead back to our ultimate answer of the question of why. Darwin speculated when he was developing his theory that all life had a common Ancestor, and so his famous drawings. This is not his original drawing, by the way, but his famous illustration was that all biological life was that of a tree. Just as a tree has a single trunk and many branches, so too does biological life have a single common ancestor, and all living things will come. From that common ancestor, according to Darwinian thought. Darwin hypothesized, he said, if if you could take, just like breeders, will take a population of cattle or dogs. Darwin raised dogs. And my father raised dogs, by the way. And he would bring in a pedigree. And a pedigree usually looked, it would have two sides, these brackets, one on this side and one on the other. And there would be physical traits that would ultimately lead to the dog that you were thinking about purchasing and the germans used our darwinian thought to help breed and domesticate their particular type of animals to get those traits that they wanted in their german shepherds people say german shepherds are x y and z very loyal very smart yes because germans have bred them that way and darwin hypothesized if human beings can do this synthetically If they could take animal populations and get cattle that is more resistant to arid conditions, say, for instance, longhorn cattle in the southwest, simply by breeding traits that are more favorable, why couldn't that have happened on a larger level? If we just add time, if we just add matter... And we add this additional theory of natural selection. We could explain that all life has come from one single organism. So Darwin hypothesized that there was at one time a single organism. He didn't know much about the cell and we'll give him a pass on that. Didn't know much about the human cell. But he hypothesized that the most... Basic, basic life would, over millions and millions of years, build from simple organisms to more and more and more complex organisms. And they would move in their own direction. They would move into their own organistic, or sorry, Uh, move into their own classes and phylum of animals and they would spread out from this one cell. Now by the way I made this little tree of life here. If you're a biologist don't scrutinize it, okay? Don't scrutinize it. I made it this morning. It's not the best tree of life but it essentially gets the picture. And that is that Darwin believed all life could be traced here. So ultimately the big question comes up here in the top. Where did man come from? Is he just another animal? Well, Darwin believed that all biological life, all plants, all animals, and even bacteria had a common ancestor, but he nonetheless had two major problems that he was aware of. And here's where I want to just spend just a little time explaining outside of scripture. Just where this theory has problems in just everyday science. And I'm going to give you two of the major issues. They're not the only ones. The first one is the issue of the fossil record. Darwin claimed in his Origin of Species that if the fossil record could not be supported, or did not support his theory, if his theory couldn't be supported by the fossil record, That his theory would absolutely, these are his words, his theory would absolutely collapse. In other words, you can say that all life came from single-celled organisms, but it's going to have to be found in the historical record of the geological past. You're going to have to see gradual change. And Darwin expected that you'd find simple life, and it would get more complex And more complex, and more complex, and more complex, and more complex, and that we would see this life begin to branch out, and that that could be found in the fossil record. Well, is it? And the answer to that question is no. There is a major, major issue with Darwinian theory, and one of those, the major issue, is. What is called the Cambrian Explosion. Stephen C. Meyer who wrote a New York Times bestseller on this entitled Darwin's Doubt. Chronicles in 560 pages how problematic the fossil record is for Darwin's theory. Now I want to just explain something to you. We are constantly as Christians maligned for being dogmatic in our teachings. But I want to show you that when you go into the average high school and in the average college, that the dogmatism of Darwin, that opinion, that religion of Darwinism, is embraced even in light of the historical data that contradicts it. This is a pretty good illustration, forgive the darkness, of what you have When you have or what you have in the geological record here's what happens in the geological record that is observable that is observable you have one level after one level and geologists date those to certain periods and what you have all the way up is simple single-celled organisms until a time period known as the cambrian time period Where fully formed animals suddenly appear out of nowhere. And biologists call this the biological Big Bang because life suddenly appears fully formed, fully complex, roughly 90%. Of the modern phylum that exists today are present in this period without a single common ancestor. And those phylum lead into smaller and smaller subclasses of, guess what? The same kind of animal. Kind after kind is what the fossil record proves. Do the research for yourself. Even the scientists who are the most staunch Darwinists know the problem of the Cambrian explosion. The scripture tells us that life comes from God's word. That God forms things that creep on the ground. I don't know why, but he does. And he forms animals and he puts birds in the air and they always breed after their own kind and that's exactly what the fossil record testifies to the second major issue that Darwin has is the problem of irreducible complexity I mentioned this several weeks ago but a good review would be helpful Darwin didn't know what the cell was In Darwin's day, they didn't have electron uh, microscopes. They couldn't get down to the smallest, smallest uh, way of of viewing an organism. And for Darwin, he didn't know much about the cell. All he thought was that it was a simple little sack of protoplasm. He knew it was important. He just didn't know how important. And what he didn't know was the world of information. As one scientist, David Berlinski, has called it, a galaxy of information. And in that cell, Darwin was a world to Darwin that he never knew. And one scientist came along within the last 30 years or so. His name is Michael B. And he uncovered a reality in the cell, in the, in the uh, uh, organic or microbiological world, that there were microorganisms that were irreducibly complex. It's a big word. Irreducibly complex. And all irreducible complexity means is that an organism is irreducibly complex if it has several parts that work together for a goal and if though one of those parts is either removed or moved into another place the entire organism cannot function say why is that a problem the problem is that Darwin said this happened without a designer and that it happened over time and that it happened by unguided hands The chief Darwinist today, Richard Dawkins, calls this the blind watchmaker. But I don't know about you. I know that the only persons that make watches are persons with minds who understand order. And what we found was that there are organisms at the smallest, smallest parts of life that have to be ordered completely before they can ever function the example is a mousetrap you have several parts to a mousetrap five in particular you have a holding bar a platform a catch a hammer and a spring and if you remove one of those single parts from the mousetrap you're not going to catch any mice. none i almost said mouses that's what we say in the south you're not going to catch any mice If you remove a single part of that mousetrap. If you take the spring and you switch it with the hammer, you're not gonna catch any mice. All that organ or that that piece, that that and piece of engineering is irreducibly complex. All of the parts must be there, and they must be put in their exact order if it is ever going to work. Now, Darwin had a competing theory of fitness. And an organism in the real world that doesn't work at all, guess what happens to it? It dies. When your kidneys say, I'm done, guess what happens? You die. When your heart says, I'm done, you die. Darwin had no idea of this world. The bacteria flagellum motor here on the side is a motor that moves bacteria within the cell. It's a very small thing, and it's a small part of the cell, and it moves bacteria from one side of the cell to another, and what it has to have is something like 40 different parts that are structured completely and in the right order and must be there. If a single one is missing, if a single one is out of order, the organism will not function. And at the microbiological level, Darwin's theory is absolutely refuted. Christian, God said in his word that he made life. Why would we not take him at his word? Science, though, can only take us so far. Science cannot answer the why. All of the stuff I just spoke about is very neat. And it leads us ultimately to a first creator, a first maker. But the question of why and where this stuff all came from has to be answered from another source. The microbiologist the zoologist, the physicist, none of them can answer the question for us. Why is there life rather than no life? There is only one who can answer that question. It is the author of life that can answer that question. God, who tells us why there is life. Good friend of mine and becoming a better friend of mine, he doesn't know I'm going to quote him this morning, Russell Davis, we've been having a Email correspondence for the last uh, week or two. I think it's over 3,000 words now, Russell. I've counted them. It's roughly 3,000 words in this conversation. He said this it's beautiful. He said, The scientific method is a means of identifying truths about our physical environment, but it is not capable of performing proof about any singular event, that is to say, No scientific proofs related to unrepeatable events, events such as the creation of the world, events such as the resurrection. He says here, fortunately, and I love this, we have another means of learning about these one-time events, namely, God's eyewitness account provided to us in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Colossians. We're going to look at just chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 20. My chief goal in this beginning part of Basic Christianity, and my chief goal in really the entire series of Basic Christianity, is this. The Bible does not does not portend to be one option amongst others. The Bible does not claim to be one example of a religion Pick and choose. The Bible is not a buffet. It does not say we're the prime rib and the other religions are the ham and the pork chops. It says we're the only dinner to be served. The Bible is not simply one book of a religion. It is truth. And what God's word tells us, we ought to expect to be true in all of life. If God proves himself in small things about creation, we ought to trust him in the big things about the meaning of life. The God who told you he created all life, kind after kind, by the very word of his mouth, Also tells us why he made all life. And here's what he says He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Now, that last word, firstborn, doesn't mean that Jesus was born like we think. It's echoing a Jewish tradition of who gets the preeminence. Who is the greatest in all of life? In fact, that's the very point of this passage. For by him all things were created. Scripture said in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. But God does everything as a trinity. So that when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always involved in every act, even in the crucifixion, their roles are unique. But God can never be divided and Christ is the invisible image of the visible God. He and God are one for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That little phrase there in the scripture is called a chiasm. And all it's doing is saying Christ is the sovereign creator of everything that exists physically and everything that exists supernaturally. Christ is the creator. What is physical and what is beyond physical. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, wherever Paul uses that phraseology in his letters, he's typically referring to angelic powers. He's saying the demons that you're afraid of, when Christ says to them, come out, they come out. When Christ says to the man, the demoniac, When he says he goes to those demons, what do they say to him? Have you come to persecute us? Even the demons fear Christ. This is no mere man. This is true God of God and true man of man. He has authority over every evil spirit every evil spirit that you might be afraid of is lurking in your home or someone has put upon you as a curse, they only do it and those demons only have authority so as God says they have authority. For greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The devil and Christ are not equals. Christ is God of Satan. Satan's very origin is found by the word of Christ. Not only that, Satan is defeated. All things were created through him and for him, so that when you're living your life for you and not for Christ, you're not living your life according to God's will. This life is not about how much you can accumulate, how much wealth you can accumulate, how much property you can accumulate, how healthy you'll be, how good your abs look. This life is about what you do for Christ. The very moment between... Christ's death and resurrection and when he comes again is nothing but a moment of mercy upon God, by God, according to 2 Peter 2 or 2 Peter 3, which tells us that in this time between the times, it is simply God not, not judging the world. Listen to me. Don't be afraid of asteroids smashing into the earth. The Bible says God will come like a thief in the night. Christ will come like a thief in the night. And the only thing, the only reason why he doesn't is to see if you will stop for a second. That you will stop your life of idolatry, whether it be yourself, your children, your career, sex, drugs, and see whether or not you will make him Lord. That's why tomorrow, should God be so gracious, will come. Not for you to get rich. Not for you to get a career. Not for you to graduate college. Not for you to have pleasure and get married and have children. God has made the world that his creation might enjoy him might glorify him forever. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Douglas Moo says at the moment God says, the stars shall no longer be in the sky, they will fall. That's what Revelation tells us. When Christ comes again, the stars will fall. The sun burns out. The moon becomes blood red. The universe, whatever gravity is, whatever dark matter is, they don't even know. There's no no even understanding of what this stuff is. The Bible says it's held together by God and by His grace. He is the head of the body, the church. So not only is God the creator of this world, but he gets to tell us how his church, his people, should live in this world. If he is the author of the stars in the sky, why do you think he doesn't get to be the author of your life? The master of your choices. Why would you believe that God is Lord over everything except your possessions, your money, your marriage? He is the head of the body, the church. I see so many churches today with human heads without Christ as the head building their Churches on quicksand rather than the rock. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That means that if you have hope, that when you die, I'm doing I am going to my fourth. Funeral, I told you a week ago that we were with a man. He passed away. By the time I had finished my sermon last week, he had passed away. We're going to the funeral this, mo- or this afternoon, Stephanie and I. The fourth funeral in as many weeks... And I told that couple and their family standing in that bedroom as he took his last breath, just like I told my aunt last night as she watched her husband die, that man, both of those men knew Christ. There was evidence that they knew Christ. And I believe that their bodies, in a glorified form, will literally raise from the ground. And should they still have dirt on them, I believe they'll have dirt on them. Why? Because Christ raised from the dead. That's why. Because 2,000 years ago, Christ raised from the dead. He is the evidence that we need. God is victorious over death. He has promised us that he will one day be ultimately victorious over death. And that promise was proven in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Christ might be preeminent in everything. He is not only the first of overall creation. He is the first over all the new creation. For in him. For in him. All. All the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What is the meaning of life? The answer is found 2,000 years ago on Calvary. In The person of Jesus Christ, God reconciled to himself all things. This morning I want to ask you, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to ask you a question. Christian. I want you to pray with me. Have you been living your life for yourself or for Christ? Scripture has told us this morning that the life lived for the self is not a life worth living. It's not the meaning of life. It's not why we're here. You're not an accident. You bear the image of God. But how are you treating that image of God today? If we look at your life, is there an example that you have been following Christ? Is there examples that you are His disciple? I'm going to ask that every head be bowed and every eye closed. As we pray this morning, if you want to pray to begin your life with Christ, repeat after me. You don't have to pray out loud, but repeat after me. Christ Jesus, you are Lord of heaven and earth. I've been living in sin. I want to live for you. Holy Spirit, give me the new life. Make me a new creation in Christ. And help me to live all the days of my life for you. If you'd please stand, we're going to have Tara play two, just two stanzas. I'm going to ask that any of you who would like to come to rededicate your life to Christ, any of you who want to receive Christ for the first time, as we play two stanzas right now, if you'd come now.